Uh, well, hello everyone. Uh, I'd like to be back with you again after my week away last week. I hear I missed a good uh, lecture from my almost namesake, Peter J. Williams from Cambridge Uni. Uh, I was away in, in Cardiff for the weekend. Uh, I'm going to address this evening one of the uh, five arguments that I address in my forthcoming book, which I've now got the front cover through from the publisher this week, which is very exciting. They did the cover idea that I, I liked. Um, and it was an argument from Jesus' uh, fulfillment in his life of Old Testament prophecies, writings in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And it was an argument that I was particularly keen to look at when I came on to writing this book, because it's one that I've come, come across in the work of other uh, Christian writers, and I've often thought to myself that they're rather kind of um, lax and vague in the way that they construct the argument. And I really wanted to kind of see if I was a lot more strict about what data I would let through and so on, uh, how strong the argument would be even then, being as sort of strict as I felt in good conscience I could be with it. Uh, in Victor Stenger, his book The New Atheism, he is uh, one of the new atheists, he says that in order to validate a spiritual experience, all that has to happen is that the person returning from such an experience reports some fact that she could not have known ahead of time. This could be the successful prediction of some future event. Well, I want to be a little bit more stringent than that. I want to go with uh, Christian philosopher Thomas B. Morris when he notes that a single successful prediction about a remote or unlikely event can be just a lucky guess. Uh, a shot in the dark that just happens to hit the target. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person's able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just describing it all to luck. We can sort of allow ourselves a certain amount of luck in our explanations, but not too much. So at a certain point, we have to hypothesize some explanation for the success of the predictions, some connection responsible for the otherwise highly improbable accuracy. Well, uh, I was very happy to come across this verse in the letter of 1 Peter, where Peter is talking about the issue of Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy, and he gave me a kind of uh, pattern for laying out my chapter in the book. Uh, he said that some prophets told how kind God would be to you, and they searched hard to find out more about the way you would be saved. The Spirit of Christ was in them and was telling them how Christ would suffer and would then be given great honour. So they searched to find out exactly who Christ would be and when this would happen. So this gives us several categories of Old Testament prophecy that Peter thought were fulfilled in the life of Christ. Now we don't have time to go into all of them tonight, but I'll just mention them. They sought to discern when the Messiah would, would be active, and Jesus' ministry satisfies that prediction. They sought to discern who the Messiah would be, something we can analyse in terms of his origins, in terms of ancestry and his actions. And Jesus seems to satisfy that portrait of the Messiah. They sought to discern that the Messiah would suffer in the cause of salvation, like Jesus. Uh, they sought to discern the manner of that suffering, which seems to comport with the way that Jesus suffered. And they also discern that having suffered a great deal for the cause of salvation, the Messiah would be given great honour. 
Well, when you start talking about Jesus' fulfilment of these prophecies from hundreds of years ago, though, an obvious question comes up. What about Jesus deliberately fulfilling these things? Looking, you know, he had the Old Testament, so couldn't he have looked at the prophecies and said, right, I'm going to make everyone think I'm the Messiah, I'm going to do these things? Well, some of the time, yes. For example, when Jesus claimed to make a new covenant predicted in books like Jeremiah, and you can see it referenced particularly the Last Supper seems to do this, referenced in Corinthians and all the Gospels, or when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem at Passover time, predicted in Zechariah, fulfilled, for example, Matthew 21. He was probably deliberately fulfilling those prophecies in order to lay claim to the status of being the Jewish Messiah. However, there are many fulfilled prophecies, it seems to me, over which Jesus could, in purely human terms, at least, not have had any control. Things like his ancestry, his lineage, the time of his birth, uh, the place of his birth, um, his ability uh, to heal people being rejected by the authorities, even though they were looking for a messiah. Um, Jesus' own prediction of his repudiation by Peter when the cockle crowed and all that. Uh, the time and detailed circumstances of his own death, his resurrection from the dead, and Jesus' own prediction of the temple's destruction, which happened in AD 70. So those are things that we could kind of say, well, those weren't deliberate fulfillments on his part, so let's, let's ignore all of this stuff and only concentrate on these kind of fulfillments. Secondly, some have argued that um, Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy in the New Testament is what's called historicized prophecy. That's a fancy theological way of saying that the gospel writers lied their heads off, just made it all up. That they were just saying, well, uh, look, look, Old Testament prophecy, uh, yes, Jesus did this, even though they knew that he didn't. But of course, for example, the Apostle Peter and Second letter of Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's either really lying his head off here, or he is telling us what he sincerely thinks. Well, I think it's implausible to think that the disciples just kind of invented non historical details in reports of, for example, Jesus' death or resurrection in order to historicize prophecies when you notice that it's obvious from the text that they only interpreted some of these prophecies as predicting what happened to Jesus in the light of the perceived reality of those events themselves. It was the occurrence of certain events that to their mind showed how the prophecies were to be correctly interpreted in a lot of instances and justify them in thinking that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Before those events, they actually didn't really think they knew. They ran away from him, thinking that he'd completely failed when the Romans crucified him and so on. It's also implausible given the integrity displayed in the, the Gospel writers' uh, use, for example, of material that passes what's called the criterion of embarrassment. Their inclusion in their writings with things that are embarrassing to their own cause. For example, um, Peter's denial of Christ, laid out most explicitly in the Gospel of Mark that Peter's testimony stands behind. And finally, their willingness to be martyred for what they're claiming to be true demonstrates at least a sincerity 
a concern for truth that they're willing to be murdered for. And that seems to be at odds with the hypothesis that they had so little uh, integrity that they're willing to just kind of make stuff up in order to con people. Stephen T. Davis, a philosopher and theologian, says, had the early Christians engaged in such a practice of just making stuff up, it's highly probable that sayings would have been placed in the mouth of Jesus that were relevant to the central concerns and controversies of the, the early church. But Davis points out that there is nothing placed in the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels that addresses numerous issues of central controversy within 1st and 2nd century Christianity. So I've given you some uh, handouts on the tables because I didn't want this to descend into simply me quoting a lot of texts at you and also wanted you to know that I wasn't um, just making them up. I want you to be able to pursue them yourselves and ask yourself, now, am I taking the obvious meaning of the text or am I kind of shoehorning them into saying this kind of thing? Uh, something that I think some uh, Christian apologists have done in the past. And I wanted to kind of whittle down the list of prophecies. The list that I appeal to in my book is much shorter than, for example, the list that would be appealed to by um, an, a Christian apologist like Josh McDowell in his book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Because I think some of them are a bit iffy, frankly. I also wanted to tie it down to um, predictions that, and fulfilments that were as much as possible multiply attested and particularly independently uh, attested. So I've got here eight prophecies of the Messiah's origins. Uh, it'll come from uh, Abraham, the tribe of Judah, etc., etc. Um, multiply attested and some very rough back-of-the-envelope calculations as to how likely it is that any person would uh, fulfill each of those predictions. And I'm trying to be very conservative in the numbers that I'm putting here, sort of saying, well, you know, what if half of the people alive at the time uh, would, uh, came from uh, Jesse's family? You know, wildly optimistic numbers. So for these eight prophecies, and I worked with a PhD mathematician friend of mine on this, uh, we reckon that there's a one chance in sort of 17 million-ish for those eight prophecies. Four prophecies about the Messiah's actions. Again, you've got the list there. You can follow it up. We reckon about a one chance in 10 million. Combine those, 12 prophecies only. Chances of them being fulfilled, about one in 117 million million. So we're getting some, some fairly long odds of it just being fulfilled by chance in Jesus' life now. I think also you can take at least 15 separate prophecies that you can tease out from Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which I've given you on the sheets, when you compare them to the gospel accounts of Jesus' sufferings. And if we give a, again, a sort of fairly generous one in four chance, you know, one in four people had this happen to them, which is, of course, wildly optimistic, the combined odds of those 15 aspects being fulfilled by chance in Jesus would be one in 1,074 million. Now, if we combine the odds that we've calculated thus far, we get to one chance in uh, 182,580 million million million. That's roughly one in 1.8 times 10 to the power of 23 of Jesus fulfilling these things, just 27 prophecies by chance. Now, if you're anything like me, you want some kind of concrete, 
concepts to, to hang that kind of mathematical number off. Those odds are roughly comparable to your chances of successfully picking up at random on your first attempt at picking up a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all the grains of sand on the planet. According to the European Space Agency, there are about 10 to the power of 23 stars in the universe. So those are pretty darn long odds. And I just wanted to see if I was pretty careful with my criteria. I'm only going to take prophecies that seem really obviously prophecies. I'm only going to take fulfillments that are uh, multiply and or independently attestated. And I'm just looking at a certain number of them there, and you get to a pretty big number already. And there we've only really looked at the Messiah's origins and actions and his suffering. Remember, there are a whole bunch of other categories that Peter was talking about in his letter. So as Thomas V. Morris puts it in his book, Making Sense of It All, Pascal and the Meaning of Life, it's a very good book, I recommend it to you. So the series of prophecies made by different people at different times, culminating in a single fulfillment by the life of so remarkable a person as Jesus, cries out for an explanation of an extraordinary sort. And he reckons, and I reckon too, the most reasonable explanation is that God was involved in the prophecy and or fulfillment, thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation. Now, as I said at the beginning, in my book, Understanding Jesus, I would give five arguments for understanding Jesus in the Christian way in what philosophers would call a cumulative case. That's like a sort of case a lawyer might give in court where it's the strength comes from the fact that all the bits of evidence point in the same direction. Each of the bits of evidence gives some reason for believing the conclusion, even if on its own it doesn't give enough reason. So I'm quite happy to say that this evidence from fulfilled prophecy may not be sufficient reason to convince anyone that Jesus was who Christians think he was. But it certainly seems to point in that direction. And combined with the other reasons that we've been looking at and will continue to look at until the, the course ends, I think it's a, a significant part of the case that must be taken into account, even when you're trying to be a bit more stringent with the argument than some people have been in the past. Thank you very much. I shall end there. Thank you.